Now, the first part of Exodus, Exodus divided into three sections. The first part of Exodus is the Exodus out of Egypt and going through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. The second part is Mount Sinai, where God is going to reveal himself to them. And he's going to first give his law, and then the third part is going to give instructions for the tabernacle. So we have just finished the first section. We first finished the first section where God has seemed absent with a Pharaoh that oppressed and tried to kill Israel over and over again. And God was barely mentioned to where he fully revealed himself to Moses and Israel through these plagues and delivered them through the Exodus and destroyed Egypt and brings them out with a pillar of fire and smoke. And he provides them bread and food and water and all this kind of stuff and defeats in the powerful nation of Amalek. And it's so obvious who God is. It's so obvious he's real and it's so obvious what he's capable of. And now he brings them to Mount Sinai where he's going to show up in an even more powerful way. And now we begin where we now see the heart of who God is. So you've seen the love of God. You've seen the faithful character of God. You've seen the salvation and the unconditional love of God. Now that you've seen that, God is ready to reveal him as a righteous, just God who demands a certain life of righteousness and obedience and will hold you accountable to that. Because both God is both sovereign and demanding as well as unconditionally merciful and gracious. And so first he takes these oppressed, abused, abandoned people and he reveals his unconditional, merciful love, long-suffering to them. Now that they've seen that, he's ready to reveal who he is and what he expects as the divine judge of the universe. And how do they keep from becoming Egypt? How do they keep from becoming Amalek? And that is through the law. That is through the law. One thing that we're really good at talking about in Christianity is what we've been saved from. But we're not very good at talking about what we've been saved to. You have to realize that salvation is both a from and a to. And so often we're like, well, I was saved from this life of addiction, or I was saved from a life of loneliness, or I was saved from a life of hopelessness, or whatever. And we're like, and now God is good, and I'm with God, and yes, I screw up, and I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And, but we don't often talk about what I've been saved to. And I know we've grown up in the church enough that behaviorism has been pounded into our head. But behaviorism is not what you've been saved to. If that's all you've been saved to, then be any religion. Buddhism, Islam, they're all behaviorist religions. If it's just about being a good person, then go join any religion. But what you've been saved to is a relationship with God with the expectation that you'll build his kingdom. And that's what you've been saved to. And we're all doing it in different ways with different skills and different gifts that God has given to us. But it's not just that you've been saved from your life of sins and now you can do whatever you want and run whatever business you want and go on whatever vacations as you want as long as you're a good person. What God saved you from 
was to save you too, knowing him in such a powerful way that it will change your behavior so that you can build God's kingdom. Not your business, not your 401k, not your vacations, not your hobbies, or for my students, your Netflix binging, but the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. God is a good God that gives us gifts. But where is your heart? And where do you put most of your energy? Where do you put most of your investments? Both physically, mentally, emotionally, time, money. And we don't think that way. Or we think, well, God is called pastors and missionaries, but I'm just a banker. Or I'm just a... And the church is largely guilty of that. Because I can't tell you how many times growing up our church was like, Okay, if you're a pastor or missionary, or they're going to admit, let's stand up and put our hands on them and pray for them. But nobody else in the church can be prayed for because you're just bankers and teachers and businessmen and doctors. And unless you're like sick, then we'll call you up and pray for you. But we don't think of my bank is the garden of God that I should be expanding. The hospital is that that I'm supposed to make my hospital look like God. I'm supposed to do whatever I can to love people there like God would, to relate to the nurses and doctors like God would, to change policy in the hospital that it actually takes care of people, even on a financial or a whatever level, like God would. Or I am supposed to build my business of IBM in a way that God would, that it's not about profit first, but it's about something else first, taking care of people not cutting corners on a product so that I can sell you a new computer two years later. That All that, so that everywhere we go, things are running the way that God would run them. And that's what you've been called to. So wherever you are, that's what God has called you to. He's called you to know God so powerfully that you will feel satisfied and content in a way that you never felt because nothing else in the world has given that. And because you're tapped into that, that automatically changes you. You don't try harder to be a better person. You act like the people you hang out with. And the more you hang out with God, the more you become like Him. Not because you try harder, and not because you feel guilty. And I'm not saying you should never feel guilty for your wrong behavior. I'm just saying too often guilt is our motivation for change and not because I love God. Or fear of consequences is our motivation for change. And then the more you love them, the more you can't help to go out and take care of the oppressed, the poor, the needy, and to fight for lost causes, so to speak. And he's all called us to different areas. And that's what you have to realize what's happening at Mount Sinai now. Because Mount Sinai is when he's going to give them the law. And this is where he's going to tell them, this is how you are supposed to be. Because I am like this. And this is what I want you to do. The Abrahamic promise was so that you'll be a blessing to the world. And so at Mount Sinai, this is what he's going to do. He's going to make them into something new. Now the first way he does is he reveals himself on a mountain. All gods live on top of mountains in the ancient world. Mountains were powerful. Mountains were unmovable. Mountains were up in the sky. And so, of course, the gods would sit up there. 
So the first thing God wants to communicate to them is he is a sovereign God. And so he's going to appear to them on the mountain. But unlike the pagan gods, he's actually going to appear to them on the mountain. I mean, they knew the gods were up there, but they never saw the gods up there. I mean, I've gone to Greece and I went to Mount Olympus and I looked up there and there was nothing there. Okay, except for snow. And so he says that he's going to reveal himself to the mountain. And he comes down with great fire, earthquake, lightning, fire. So imagine a hurricane and a tornado and the most fearsome thunderstorm you've ever seen and fire and earthquakes all coming down on top of a mountain. And it's all supersized because it's Yahweh. The people are going to fall to the ground in total fear. So the first thing you need to understand is this isn't, Jesus is not just the God who says, come to me and sit on my lap, little children. He's also the divine God of the universe that shows up in a big ball of fire and earthquake and thunder. And he's scary. He's scary. And so he's going to show up in this way. Now, we don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is. Okay, some people put it at the very, very peak of, Mount, of the Sinai Peninsula. That's the traditional spot. Although recently some scholars have posted that it's actually on the other side of Mount Sinai, like in the Arab desert, going further east, um, called um, Jabal al-Lazah. And that's in my notes. Um, because they have discovered that, one, it's in the Arabian desert, close to Midian, and it's a little bit closer to where Abraham, or Moses, sorry, would have found his sheep than in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, but what's also interesting is they found that at the top of that mountain is scorched. And they've tested it. And the testings have concluded that the only way that scorching could appear on the top of the mountain is if a four-ton megaton bomb had been dropped on it. Well, bombs are fairly new since <laughs> World War II, and they've never dropped a bomb there. And so, now that's not ironclad proof but it does kind of make you wonder. But all in all, it doesn't really matter where Mount Sinai is. All that matters is that God revealed himself. And so he reveals himself to them on this mountain. So God is going to reveal himself. He's going to give them the law, but he wants to them to be a different kind of a people. So, verse 1, In the third month, or fifty days later, after Israelites went out from the land of Egypt, on the very day that they came to the desert of Sinai, after they camped from Rephi, journeyed from Rephidim, they came to the desert of Sinai. And they camped in the desert. And Israel camped there in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. Now, this is the first journey up. Moses is going to do a whole lot of this. He's going to go up the mountain to God. This is the first time he goes up to God. And Yahweh called to him from the mountain. Thus, and he doesn't go all the way up. Thus you will tell the house of Jacob. Now, remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and that becomes the name of the nation of Israel. Now, this isn't always the rule, but a lot of times God will use Jacob and Israel interchangeably throughout the Bible, especially when you get to the prophets. And what's interesting is that a lot of times when he goes back to the word Jacob, He's calling them Jacob because Jacob was the man who was disobedient to God and didn't ever trust in him. And Israel was the guy who trusted in God because Israel means God fights for you or God protects you. So he's actually living like that. And so what's interesting is that God says you should go to Jacob, meaning that Israel is acting a lot more like Jacob than they are Israel right now. And declare to the people of Israel... Now, sometimes he also calls them Israel because they are acting like Israel or because he wants to encourage them to begin to act like Israel. 
So that by the fact that he's using both terms means that he's acknowledging what they really are, but also saying this is what they could be. And that's what's so great about God is he is harshly saying, look, you're kind of pathetic right now. But at the same time, you can be Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession or treasure out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. Now, chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, is by far the most, one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible. Every scholar agrees that this is the most important paragraph in the entire Torah, if not the Bible. This is the identity of Israel. This is the identity of Israel and what they are to be. See, Abraham, God said, I will give you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And so that you will be a blessing to the world. That's their mission, so to speak. But it is here that he's saying, I adopted you. You're my son. This is your identity. And then he's also going to wrap it in their mission. And so now with Abraham, they mostly got what he was going to do for them so what they could become. Now they're getting their identity, which will make their mission make more sense. If you don't see your identity as a doctor who heals people, you're probably not going to have a very effective mission as a doctor who heals people. So what does he say? The first thing that he says is, you will tell Jacob, declare to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now it's very important for you to understand that the first thing God says is, I am the God who saved you and I brought you to me. And he uses this beautiful imagery of a mother eagle bird. Now this imagery is also used in Isaiah 40, that he will lift you up on eagles' wings and even young men stumble and, and young and youth grow weary and tired, but those who hope and trust the Lord will not stumble or grow weak or faint or weary. Now, what this image is, the mother eagle, when her birds are first beginning to learn to fly, she puts her little birds on her wings and she soars off the mountains. And you guys know eagles like are up in giant mountains, not in trees. I mean, sometimes trees, but only the big trees. <laughs> and when she goes out and she flies and she drops her wings and lets her birds fall to the ground. And they begin to flap. And if they flap, nobody does it the first time. But they begin to flap, they fly off, and that's how they learn. And then they join mother bird and they fly with her. If they fall, then she swoops down and she puts her wings out and picks them up again and catches them. And she keeps doing this until they learn to fly. But she never, ever, ever lets them strike the ground. And that's the imagery. I am a mother eagle bird who carries you on my wings. Now notice he doesn't say, who sometimes lets them drop so that you can run. And fly. He says, I always carry you on my wings. Because even the youngest and most athletic and energetic and strongest 
young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in me always rest on the wings of God. And what's going to become very powerful is he's going to command them to take their prayer shawls when we get the numbers and sew tassels into them. Now, these tassels are in other cultures, but these tassels, when they hold them out over their head, they will hold them out like this and they will pray. And it'll almost look like they have wings. And it's to remind them of the wings of God. And this is why Ruth says, Blessed are you, Boaz, who have put me under the shelter of God's wings. And that's the imagery that's being painted here. And so what God is saying, notice that he has not given them the law yet. How obedient has Israel been? There's no obedience. There's no true trust in God. He has not given them the law yet, but he has saved them. And he says, I did all the work. I delivered you. I carried you. I brought you to me. I provided you. You have done nothing to earn your salvation. And then he'll give them the law. And what God is painting is a very powerful picture that salvation has never been about obedience. Salvation has always been about grace. But if you're truly saved, then that should automatically lead you to obedience. Obedience does not bring salvation. Obedience is the result of salvation. And that's why James says, if you have no obedience in your life, then I question your salvation. And that's very important because you need to understand the law never saved anybody. The law was never meant to save anybody. A lot of people think that in the First Testament, if there is no Jesus, then somehow the most dominant thing all throughout the Bible was that it was the law. So therefore, their obedience to the law is what saved them. But when Jesus comes along, thank God for Jesus because now we don't have to be obedient, now we're saved. But God never changes. There's no way... Because none of these people are obedient. In fact, that's the point that Paul's going to make, is that Abraham disobeyed the law all the time. Not only does he disobey the law, but he didn't even have the law. Yet he believed and God credited to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been about faith in the kingdom of God that is not through my works and my effort that a kingdom of contentment and satisfaction will be built is not through the kingdom of man that I will find my utopian society, but is only through the work of God that the kingdom will come and I'll be a part of it. It's always been about faith. The law was never about salvation. The law was not about it being accepted by God. The law was never about being with God. They're already accepted by God. They've already been adopted. They've already been saved. They've already been redeemed. They've already been delivered. Then he gives them the law. The law was about blessings. It was about what type of relationship will you have with God? What kind of a salvation will you have? And the law taught you who God was as a righteous being. And the law taught you that this is what you need to be. And if you are this, then you will receive these blessings. Had everything to do with blessings and cursings. Now, cursing is not always a witchcraft, Halloween, I curse you, put a hex on you, you're a newt now. Okay, Cursing in the Bible is the direct 
active judgments of God on people, but most of the time it's the passive judgments of God and that God removes his blessings, he removes his protection, and now you're left to your own defenses to live in the world. And when that happens, then the world happens to you. And the minute you repent, then God steps back into your life and becomes your mother eagle and your rock again and protects you from the world. And that's blessings and cursings. Cursing is God steps out of your life and you're on your own. Blessings is he steps in your life and now it's all God. And so I use that analogy of your family. Once again, your children, or if you are a son or daughter to somebody else, no matter what, they will always love you. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That is the the unconditionality of God. He will save you. He will love you. He will rescue you all the time because he will always love you. But whether you have a good relationship with your spouse or your friend or your parent or children has everything to do with their obedience and their righteousness. The more righteous your spouse is and the more loving they are to you, the healthier and the more intimate your relationship will be the more disobedient or the less righteous they are, the more your relationship will be hindered. And that's what the Mosaic Covenant is. I'm going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant a lot more at the end of Leviticus. And I'm also going to wait for the end of Leviticus because I want you to see the law before I really talk about what the law is today. Because a big question is, what role does the law have today in our life? And that's a huge question in Christianity. And I have an answer, but I believe that it will be more effective and beneficial if we can go through the law first. And so for right now, I'm going to tell you just the three main purposes for the law so that you can have that in the background of your mind. And then when we get to the end of Leviticus or somewhere in the middle of Leviticus, I'll let the Spirit lead on that one. <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Um, I will talk more about the purpose of the law and what it means for us today. But the first purpose of the law is this. It reveals the righteous standard of God. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And if we all live, if everybody in your neighborhood has an abusive alcoholic father who beats you all the time, and everybody is economically depressed, and that's all you've ever known then that's all you'll ever know. If you are a sinner who lives in a world of sin, you'll never know what righteousness looks like because nobody is righteous for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the point. If you go back to the ancient world, there weren't a lot of good people back then. The only reason that you can truly say God bless America and the only reason that pedophilia and homosexuality and bestiality and gang rape and all that kind of stuff is not accepted by most people in America is because of Christianity. Before Christianity came along, most people thought that this stuff was okay. Christianity changed the world. It did. Because if all you know is sin and you know no righteousness, then that's all you'll do is sin. Romans 6, you were enslaved to sin and death. And so how do I know what righteousness is? God has to reveal it to me. So the law is God's way of saying, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what it means to be loving. This is what it means to be generous. 
Now, that doesn't mean that nobody did anything good in the ancient world. But here's the other thing you must understand. Sin is not drunk, sex, alcohol, rock and roll, drugs, lying, cheating. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that's not sin. But that's not what sin is at its heart. Sin is self-autonomy. Sin is in the garden with Adam and Eve. Sin is when I decide that what I want is actually better than what God wants. And it's when I depend upon myself. I mean, sin is basically Americanism. It's if you want to do it right, you got to do it yourself. And if you fail at first, then try, try again. And all that kind of stuff. And I don't need, it's that that independence that I don't need anybody else, that I'm an island, that I can do it, or I don't go to God first because somehow I'm going to figure it out. Or even if I don't know how to do it and I need to find a good lawyer, I'm capable of finding the right lawyer or the right advisor or the right mechanic or the right chimney sweeper. And my research will find the best. That's sin. Sin in his heart is when I do what I want to do and I think that I can control things and I can overcome everything on my own. Alcoholism, lying, cheating, gossip, anger, frustration, that's all symptoms of sin. They are sin. But anybody can overcome gossiping. Anybody can overcome alcoholism. We see it all the time. But not anybody can overcome selfishness and self-autonomy and independence. And I've got it all figured out and I can fix it. And that is what we're incapable of doing. And that's what we don't want to do without Christ, without God. And you need to understand that at the deep, deep heart of your issue, your biggest problem is not your eating disorder. Your biggest problem is that your self-control or you think you can fix your image or you can whatever deep down inside. Or that you don't want to look weak in front of people or whatever. Your deepest sin issue, your deepest problem is that. That self-autonomy, your own image, your own pride, your control over things. And that's what we're incapable of seeing outside of. And you can make yourself a better person behaviorally, but deep down inside your heart is still a selfish, self-absorbed, only about me kind of a person. And even when you do good things, think about it. You're like, well, I'm a I used to think I was a decent person. I was like, I would hold doors open for people and I would go out of my way to help people and that kind of stuff. And then I got married. <laughs> I think one of the main purposes of marriage is just to teach you how selfish you are. And then when you kind of realize how selfish you are, then you have kids, and then you really learn how selfish you are. Because then it's like, because even my wife is like, okay, now I have to consider somebody 24-7 now, but she's not a needy little dependent-like thing that can't do anything on her own. And now I've got these three little girls that literally just suck the life and time out of my life. Okay? And all my free time has gone out the window. And the only time I have free time is between their bedtime and my bedtime. And most of the time I'm trying to catch up on taxes or bills or whatever and that kind of stuff. That, and you're tired. And you realize, man, I am selfish. And those times are like, Daddy, Daddy, play with me. And my first default is, no, I'm too busy. And you're like, oh. And I know I love them. And I know I would do anything for them except for sacrificing my time because I got a to-do list. 
And that's when I realized I'm not a good person. I'm a selfish person. Or even like, even when you hold the door open for somebody and then they don't accept it and they're like, well, I can open my own door. And you're like, well, I'm not going to do that for anybody again. Which means why was the only reason you're open the door for people? So they would smile at you and say, wow, what a pleasant young man. <laughs> or when you did missions with somebody and the pastor brings everybody up in front of the church and says, these all these people helped, da, da, da. And you're like, you're sitting there. He didn't mention my name. He forgot about me. That's not right. I was there too. And you may not say that, but you feel it in your heart because you're selfish. And yes, there's a part of you who genuinely loves people and you really do want to help people, but there's still a part of you who's doing it for yourself and your own glory, right? And even in your righteous acts, there's still a part of you who's selfish. And there's still a part of you who says, I may not do this anymore because they don't appreciate me. But if Jesus would have said that, he would have never died on the cross for you. Because that's true righteousness. That not my will be done, but yours. To the point that he was willing to die eternally on the cross for our sins and be separated from the living God of the universe. And until you realize that that's sin, that that's what God is saving you from, so that you can say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not mine. And I will pick up my cross, which means crucify your self-will, your dreams, your desires, and your hopes, and follow God. You won't know what he has saved you to. And that's what he's calling them to. And that's what he's saying. This is the first purpose of the law. You need to realize who you really are. Because the second purpose is this. When you're faced with that righteousness, now come back next week, but I'm going to make you feel guiltier than you've ever felt guilty in your entire life. Because we're going to go through the Ten Commandments. Don't let that scare you off, because if you want to love Jesus more, you'll show up. (laughs) Because when we go through the Ten Commandments, then you'll realize, I can't do that. And it makes you realize for the first time ever how sinful and selfish you truly are. And it puts the mirror in your face. And you realize, I'm a horrible, wretched man. Who will save me from myself? As Paul says before Christ in Romans 7. And then that brings you to the third purpose of the law. It reveals yourself as a sinner. Because normal, healthy people, of course, none of us are normal, healthy, so we're screwed there. But people who are faced with the love of God, when you can't do something, you cry out for help. And it makes you ready for a Savior. This is the only purpose of the law, to make you desire your Savior, to reveal your need for a Savior. By showing you that you're not really righteous, this is what true righteousness is, and then you fail to do it over and over and over again, and you realize you're a miserable, wretched soul and you can't do it, and then you realize, I need help, and everything is failing you. The Democratic Party has failed to build your utopian society. The lawyer didn't really answer all your questions and make your life better. That spouse hasn't made you truly happy with the white picket fans and the happy-go-lucky. The American dream has failed you. 
All these things fail you over and over again, and you realize finally the only one that really can actually save you is Christ. And that was the whole purpose of the law, was to reveal your wretchedness so that you would desire Christ more. Because those who have been forgiven of much, love much. That was the purpose of the law. Now, the fourth purpose is the, I'm God and I don't like this as the first purpose, but because I know your evil hearts, I have to have this. Until the Holy Spirit can come along and truly change us and truly give us the ability to live righteous lives, the law regulated your sin. Meaning this, typically the only reason we do the right thing without the Holy Spirit is because we're afraid of being punished. My uncle always used to say, locks don't keep people out. Locks just keep the honest people honest. If somebody really wants to get in, they'll get into your house. But the only people who refuse to break in through your locked door are the people who are afraid of the consequences. There's a lot of people out there who would love to steal from you, but they don't because in this day and age with everybody having an iPhone, they're afraid of getting caught. There's a lot of us, if we're honest, a lot of what motivated us, my daughters right now, a lot of the reason why they do the right thing is they're afraid of the consequences. And some of it is they're afraid of making me unhappy, and that's good, but still at the same time, that's not truly the I want to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And most of you are honest, you started off mostly because you're afraid of consequences. Even when you came to Christ, what was the main reason you came to Christ? Because I don't want to go to hell, and I really want a lot of those blessings that those people in the church were talking about. And then the hope is once the Holy Spirit comes into you and begins to change you, it becomes a little bit less of that and a little bit more of it's just the right thing to do and I want to make God happy. But that's called sanctification and that's a process. And so you have to realize that that was the point of the law. The point of the law was if you don't have something in you that truly makes you want to do the right thing and truly empowers you to do the right thing, then the only thing that will really truly motivate you and regulate you is consequences. So why then do you not murder? Because the consequence is the death penalty. And there's some people out there that are so evil that they'll still murder, knowing that that's the death penalty. And so the law comes in and gives you all these consequences and curses. And Israel knows that they're going to be taken into exile one day, and they know that God is serious because they've seen it with the Egyptians, they've seen it with the Canaanites, and yet it still won't be enough to motivate them to do the right thing, and they'll still sin. And that's the point that Paul's making. The law just made me want to sin all the more. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road and you see those, the sign that says, don't walk on grass because I just fertilized it. You never had a desire to walk on the grass until you saw the sign. <laughs> Or don't touch wet paint. Never thought about touching that wall until you saw that sign. There's something in you that just wants to touch it. <laughs> and that's what Paul is making. Is that really the only thing that we're regular... This is all you have in America. 
Why do we have so many laws? Because the only way you can regulate and keep people honest and true is with severe consequences. And when the consequences begin to fall and the prisons actually start becoming nicer than most people's homes, then the sin starts increasing. Because most people will only do the right thing if the consequences are severe enough. Until something comes in you and changes you, like the Holy Spirit, then you begin to realize, I'll do this because I want to, because it's the right thing to do, because I love God. And that was the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law was just to regulate sin through consequences until Christ could come and finally give you a Savior that would live you, allow you to live the righteous life that you want to live. And this is why Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do? And I don't do what I want to do. Who will save me from this wretched man that I am? Because the only thing that motivated him was fear of consequences. And, when the, and then he goes into chapter 8 and says, thank God for the Holy Spirit has made us alive. And now we can live with no condemnation. And then he goes into why we do things for the right reasons. And you need to understand that's the main purpose of the law. That's the heart of the law. And so when we go through the law next week, you need to pay attention and keep in the back of your mind that this has nothing to do with whether you're saved, whether you're accepted by God, or whether he'll save you or love you. This has everything to do with the fact if you want a good relationship with the divine God of the universe, then this is how you are to act, think, and live because this is how he thinks, acts, and lives. And if I want to have a good relationship with my spouse, then I live in harmony with who she is. If I want to have a good relationship with a friend, then I live in harmony with who they are. And the minute I become discord to them, then our relationship begins to die. And God is saying, your salvation is already here. I lifted you on eagle's wings. But now what kind of relationship are you going to have with me? This is what I am like, the law. This is what I want you to be. And if you are like this, you will be content and satisfied and have blessings and fruit and life. And But if you're not wanting to look like me, then because I can't have you doing evil to the other people that I love and the other people that are trying to be the right thing, then here are the consequences. Because that's all I have left to motivate you with is the stick. And so you have to realize then why, what is the purpose of the law today? The law is for those without the Holy Spirit. But for those who have the Holy Spirit, we have a new law.